Good afternoon. Welcome to the Serious Weekly Security Seminar at Purdue University. Uh, before we get started, I want to let everybody know that if you'd like to submit a question, you can do so using the Q&A button. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today. Kelly Fitzgerald is a product security architect at Raytheon Technologies. Her work focuses on factory and supply chain cybersecurity and threat intelligence. Today, she's going to share some history regarding software piracy in the gaming community. The title of her talk is Don't Copy That Floppy, a history of anti-cracking controls in early video games and its economic impact. Kelly, thanks so much for being with us today. Please take it away. Sure thing. Um, thank you so much for having me. This is really fun. Um, I'm really grateful to get the opportunity to kind of speak at something kind of a little fun and on the edges of security. Uh, so, Let's get right along. So you're probably asking who this person is. And my name is Kelly Fitzgerald. I am a product security architect. Um, I think most of this has already been said. Um, I have two single piler patents. One is on some anti-juice jacking technology. That's when you plug in your phone into some strange um, like airport free power. And instead of you know just getting power, you also have your data stolen. So I have some protections against that. And then some programmatic motivational energy uh, or um, interviewing. I like to play games on my terms. We're going to go that in a second. And um, I volunteer with Girls Who Code. So I've never played games right. Um, I don't have a lot of time. I like to play tycoon building and strategy games. Um, I often find the simulation isn't to my liking where um, maybe in SimCity, each car will be expected to have X amount of pollution. Well, I am offended by that number of pollution. So I will use tools like um, Cheat Engine and going into the settings files and decrypting them in order to try to make them more to my liking. Um, so uh, what I really want is I want the games where everybody's happy, everything is perfect, everything is working and nothing goes wrong. And so I spend a lot of time um, messing with the underpinning uh, mechanics of the game in order to get that to happen. And it's definitely a proxy for parts of my life that I don't have control in. Um, but I only ruin my own fun. This is from a few weeks ago. I was playing a video game called Prison Tycoon. It's terrible. I don't recommend it. But I wanted to make the perfect prison where um, all of the inmates fully recovered and everything went on happily ever after. And as you can see, they have sensory deprivation takes, they have VR rehabilitation. I think that's some sort of a space-time continuum in the corner and it worked. Um, so how this talk came to be, uh, last year, my management sent me to a year long internal training for systems engineering. Um, it was life-changing and it was amazing, but it took all of my fair, spare time. Um, so my escape was to listen to audiobooks when I had time to clean the house and do that sort of thing. Um, I started where everybody starts with, and I listened to The Phoenix Project, um, which was by some of your wonderful folks at Purdue. And um, after that, I went to the only place you could go to next, which is um, the technical history of video games. And so from there, I kind of got to thinking about all of the anti-copyright protections on video games and how they're kind of unique because there's not a whole lot of money to keep the video games from being copied. Um, but there is a lot of, you know, there's good reason to do it. Um, 
this talk we're kind of kind of go through a brief history of video games from the 60s forward uh we're going to look at why there were so many palm consoles out there um we're going to look at the protections that the video game consoles had and why it really hurt atari and really helped nintendo um protections in computer games and uh if you ask me really nicely at the end i'll, I'll even go through some of the arcade cabinets, which had some kind of special weird stuff, um, which was more about trying to keep the revenue in the uh, service contracts, kind of like the McDonald's ice cream machine. Um, what we start with is Space War, um, and that's basically on an oscilloscope. And it was a whole lot of folks at MIT, but um, kind of it was believed to be led by Steve Russell on the PDP-1. Uh, the PDP-1 is kind of where all our hacker culture started. Um, that's where you had all of the MIT folks on it. That's where, um, why part of hacking and computer programming, we have an element of lockpicking. It's because you needed those lockpicks in order to get into the steam tunnels in MIT. You needed to get into those steam tunnels into MIT in order to get into the computer labs to get extra time on the PDP-1. So it's all sort of intertwined into um, the ethos. And that was the space war and it was fun, but you needed to have a million dollar machine. Uh, well, actually it was 120,000 in 1962, which is about a million today. So you need a lot of money. Um, so only people who were in school could play it or people who knew somebody that was in school could play it. Um, after that, in 72, we had two big things happen. So Ralph Baer um, was working for uh, BAE Systems and he discovered or more like remembered his time in the Navy when um, he would have the oscilloscopes, he would be given test equipment and the test equipment would let him have a dot on the screen and be able to control that dot. And he thought, wow, I could turn that into a video game. And um, so that's what he did. And then he licensed it to Magnavox. Um, the thing was, it had cartridges, sort of, but they weren't really cartridges. They were cards that you put in that set the jumpers so that you could play a game. But the games had no scoring. Um, they were acetate type sheets you would put over your TV. And so you would maybe play a maze with your brother, but you know it would be up to your mom or somebody to keep track of who actually won. Uh, it had a lot of manipulatives in it, like um, video game money and stuff like that. Uh, super cool, but um, it was pretty expensive. And let me see if I got the price. Um, it had the first version of Pong, but um, it didn't really sell well. And then in 72, we had the first Pong cabinet. And the first Pong cabinet was pretty cool. Um, we already had some microprocessors being used in pinballs. Um, but he tried to originally make just a, um, and this is Bushnell, um, Space War. He tried to make his own version of Space War and it failed just because the chips weren't sophisticated enough to do it in a cost-saving way. So Pong, you would either hit it straight on and it would go that way, but if you hit it on either edge of the Pong uh, or on the paddle, it would, um, go at a different angle, which is pretty cool. And it would speed up as the game continued. Um, Bushnell once said that he thought it was a great egalitarian game because if a young lady uh, had her sights on a young gentleman, she could ask him to play Pong and 
that was a great way to start a conversation. Whether or not that was true, I don't know. Um, it made a lot of money, was incredibly successful. Um, everything about Atari was scrappy, like just kind of by the, you know, the skin of their teeth. Um, in 75, we see more evolution of the video games. Um, really interesting is Gunfight. So Gunfight for the Japanese market was made by Taito and it was made with transistor to transistor logic. And it was the best we could get. Uh, I recommend going on YouTube and looking at this. It is the most sophisticated game we could make. The problem with transistor transistor logic or TTL is that the more transistor transistor logic you put in, the more um, electromagnetic noise it makes, and then it corrupts the other uh, transistors that you're trying to do logic. And eventually everything just gets corrupted. It takes a whole lot of time and space. Um, but this company, Intel, had this thing called a microprocessor. I don't know. It seems crazy to me. And so what happened was uh, for the U.S. distribution, uh, they knew that the arcades wouldn't be nearly as tolerant as the Japanese ones. So they remade the game using um, the microprocessor. And you can kind of see that's, that's a really great point in history because you see where we moved from using transistors in video games to actually using real circuits. Um, in the same year we had home pong and that was a massive hit. Suddenly you could play pong at home. You didn't have to have quarters. Um, and then it goes for a few years and Atari was finally able to put out a console and they were able to put it by joining with Warner Communications. Um, so suddenly um, Atari that was very kind of wild had to undergo some kind of corporatization. And from that, that's where the Atari came from. Very cool, very popular. We had the Intellivision in 79, and that was more of the thinking man's console. Um, so whereas Atari was bailing wire and you know just kind of put together, Intel did bake-offs on the chips. Um, they brought in the, the best people to try to design it. They brought in aeronautical engineers, it tended to have um, much thicker gold on uh, the connectors. So um, because of that, the Intellivisions tend to do a lot better nowadays just because they were built by aeronautical engineers who usually try to make their stuff last 30 years. Um, then we got in finally in 82, because we had a game crash, we'll go on to, um, we get in the Apple IIe and the IBM PC. Um, and so then that opens the door where anybody can make a game because the kind of thought was in the ecosystem was that we should all learn basic because that's part of how we're going to be computing in the future. Um, you would buy magazines and they would have basic games you could play. Uh, they would choose your own adventure books. And once you chose your own adventure, there would be a program that you would have to type in. And um, things were going pretty well. And we were still in the US in a total crash. We never wanted to see another video game console again. But in Japan, they didn't have those feelings. So the Famicom came out in 83 and it used real cartridges. It also used the same chipset that was used in the Atari system, but it added on a whole lot more RAM and stuff like that. It did really well. So they worked really carefully and they brought it into the toy market in 85, but they included a robot so that it wasn't a game console. It was a robot you were buying and the robot was named Robbie and he really didn't do anything, but he did kind of get his way into it. And that's how the Nintendo, for folks of my age, joined our hearts. Um, we had the Game Boy in 88. It was a terrible screen. 
It wasn't backlit. It used four batteries in what felt like about 15 minutes. And um, you just loved it because it could play the Tetris. Uh, where we finally start getting interesting competitively is that we had the Genesis and the Nintendo SNES at the same time in 89. And the Genesis was far more powerful, um, but they hadn't really gotten a foothold in the market. Um, it wasn't until they had Sonic, the Hedgehog, that they kind of had an edge. And they went for the less cultured group because Sonic was rude. He had an attitude. He had this girlfriend who had red lipstick. She was kind of special. Um, and the SNES had these compelling stories and Zelda and good. And so overall, the SNES won. And then we had the 386. And that's really when just everybody had computers. Uh, so that's that's a brief history just to kind of get it. Now, what I never understood as a kid going to like yard sales and thrift shops is why I saw so many Pong consoles. And I thought maybe it was because the game was simplistic. It, it turns out that's not the case. So the, the copying started early because this company called General Instrument created the Pong on a chip. So not only could it be Pong, it turns out if you remove the line uh, from the middle of a Pong screen, that's hockey. And uh, you can play tennis and it had a whole bunch of other games. So suddenly for this chip you could buy, you could make all of these Pong clones um, and they play identically. They just have some more stylish wrapping. So we start, we were, we were starting to um, copy off of each other right from the beginning. Uh, so this is kind of, let's look at anti-piracy goals. Um, I am able to present this by trying to show you guys that this is, um, really has some threat modeling values. So uh, if you can play along and uh, respond, that would be great. Uh, so imagine this case where there's a little girl who wants her birthday presents now, and she is very adept at snooping. And her name might be young Kelly, and then mom who wants to save those presents for a special memory. So how long does mom need to keep those presents embargoed? All right, I get it, it's more of a webinar. So mom needs to keep those presents embargoed until the birthday. Like it's not really necessary to do it after then. And what kind of sophistication and funding does mom's adversary have? And mom's adversary is her daughter. I mean, the first thing I think of is she's got time. She's got lots of time to spend thinking about how to get those birthday presents. And mom probably has a whole lot more on her plate. So that's definitely her advantage. And who are the adversaries allies and what resources do they have? And so uh, the adversaries allies would be her friends and the other family members. And hopefully the other family members aren't gonna tell on her but um, she does have her friends and her friends could do clever things like calling mom and, and trying to get that done. And what resources do mo does mom have available? Um, if it was my mother, the resources she had was um, my grandmother's house and sending it all the presents over there. So there were almost never any presents. Um, some years she also would produce stunt presents to make us think we had found the presents, but we'd really found our cousin's presents. Uh, she was pretty complicated. 
and what is the impact in one or more defensive measures failing? Like uh, if suddenly I find a reason to get to grandmother's house and, um, you know, I get grandmother busy with a crossword, then I get my toys and I know the surprise and our special hallmark moment is eroded. So uh, I, I see we're um, getting in. So let's look at how much anti-piracy you need um, to protection. Imagine you just spent $20 million, which is nothing, on designing a new console, and you anticipate a lifetime sell of $80 million on hardware. How long should the protections last? So uh, it should roughly last as long as you expect to be able to keep selling that console. And then if you want your next console to use similar technology, then you may need to anticipate it to go longer. So. That's kind of the kind of thought space you need to be in. And you need to look at how sophisticated are your adversaries. And for most big consoles, your adversaries are pretty motivated. You have everything from kids in their bedroom to um, large groups of folks that are interested in baking homebrew games for your system to uh, people that are up to no good and they're just wanting to get you know, the quick buck. So when we look at the Atari problem and the crash in the late 70s of video games, what we see is in the first several years of Atari, there were no third parties because Atari didn't either allow third parties and they didn't contract with third parties. So nobody else could make games but Atari. And most of the games were made by one, one person and they never got credit. So what happened was several of those people who were making these games and getting Atari millions and millions of dollars got very upset and they created a company called Activision. And so Activision, with all of their knowledge, they totally knew how to make a game. So they started making games. And um, as it went out, that trade knowledge went out and more and more games came. And it was the first time we ever really had a cartridge game system. And many of the games were very, very bad. And as the games just overwhelmed the market, we saw a total crash till here in 84 when Almost no games are coming out and almost no games are being bought. Um, the pivotal moment where we all went, ah, was um, E.T. E.T. was coming out and um, they made this poor guy, Howard Scott Warshaw, write a game in five weeks. So they gave him um, the development environment. They brought it into his home so he could just live, eat, sleep. Um, it was a really bad game. You were supposed to find parts of a phone that were hidden all around, um, but they were really difficult to find and they didn't look like really parts of the phone. And then eventually, if you found them on these identical looking screens, uh, you could sort of phone home, but there wasn't really an end to the game. It just seemed to kind of go on forever and all the screens you were either on one of these planes here, as you see the green with the dark green, or you were looking inside of a ditch for the part. Um, and while it was bad, there were many, many other very bad games, but um, E.T. got to be the symbolic scapegoat for everything. Um, there were thousands and thousands of the returned cartridges that eventually got found in Alamogordo, New Mexico. Um, what is it, dump? Uh, and they're going to make a museum for it. 
uh, kind of interesting. The guy who made the game, Howard Scott Warshaw, became a psychologist, and now he is a psychologist in Silicon Valley helping people deal with failure. So it's a pretty good way to deal with it. And this is how Nintendo came in after the crash and all those bad games. Um, first, they had Robbie the Robot and Robbie the Robot. He only played a couple of games and one was where he would um, stack these, these little um, boxes on top of each other, except that you had to tell him what color he had in his hand already. So there was really no intelligence other than the ability to move his arm when he was supposed to. Um, uh, and I, I think I already said the Nintendo was the same as the Atari. It was a 6502 chip, but a lot more RAM and dedicated graphic memory. So the Atari, it had a beam. So you had to do all your computation before the beam hit the end and you needed to draw the next line. Whereas the Nintendo had the buffer to kind of uh, make things a lot smoother. It also had a dev kit. And they also, because they were in Japan and the Japanese market was so different than the US market, they anticipated that they were going to need um, other game developers. And so they had a partner program right at the beginning. Also at the time, Japan was undergoing kind of a quality evolution. And they realized that if they wanted to be in the American market, they really needed to make their quality really high so that it could survive that long shipping and then not get a lot of returns because returns are really expensive when you have to go, you know, to a different continent. So I wanted to go a little into the architecture of Nintendo because it's so much fun. Um, if you ever get to do some academic research on the NES and you get to explore a ROM, uh, you'll see that in order to save space, they had every possible graphics output into one of the tiles tables. Um, and you see that, and then they do it there. Um, for each individual sprite, and here it is, that's two sprites, you had a four color palette. And um, so you just had to use that consistently all the way through. So it meant that you had to be really smart with your colors, uh, just kind of neat. And it's all just in one set of really well reused boxes. What was neat about the Nintendo was that they let you put additional memory and power onto the actual cartridge um, because they knew that, that RAM and chips were going to be cheaper as time went on. So this was Super Mario Brothers, which was probably one of the first games that and Duck Hunt for the US NES. And then this is Batman by Sunsoft. And as you can see, they look like totally different games. Um, in fact, if you look at the first games for the um, SNES and the last games for the NES, very similar quality. Um, people really hadn't figured out how to use the tricks of the trade with the SNES, and they had really learned how to squeeze every ounce of cool gameplay into the NES. Um, this is what kind of made that magic happen. So you had the memory management controller. Um, there were versions one through five, which provided different amounts of memory and RAM. Um, there could also be a battery on the disc, otherwise you wouldn't have safe games on Nintendo. But what really made it part of this talk is that they had the CIC chip. And so that's also called the lockout chip. Um, so if you put a game in that didn't have another lockout chip, then you wouldn't be able to play. 
Uh, each of them had a four-bit microcontroller, the game system and the game, and they would run an algorithm. And if those two numbers didn't match, um, then the CPU would be set to one hertz and you would just have blinking. Usually, if you saw it when you were playing, it was because there was dust on your cartridge, but it also turned out to be their anti-piracy uh, controls. So um, that's what they did from a technical perspective. And then from a process perspective, they used the Nintendo seal, um, which would mean if you didn't have the seal, you weren't certified and you shouldn't be on the system. Um, to avoid the glut, which happened with Atari, each game maker was only allowed to make five games a year. So what would happen is Activision might spin up six different companies so that they could get 30 games a year. And then you had to buy the blank cartridges from Nintendo for $9 to $14. And the games were selling for $30 or $40. So Nintendo was really cutting into your profits. So, of course, the industry got really clever. Um, they did a lot of really interesting stuff. Let me pull. So what we had was the Game Genie, which you would lock your um, cartridge in, and then you would actually be able to send codes that would unlock certain things or change the states of a particular game so you would get unlimited lives. Um, later games were built oftentimes with that in mind, so it was loud. And um, Nintendo, as they um, created newer generations of the NES, would try to make it more difficult to put that pass through and the and the game genie in. Um, so it was kind of interesting. Some other problems of why we saw this happening with people doing the lockout chip was um, Nintendo wouldn't allow religious theming, um, and they also wouldn't allow uh, crude humor. So game companies that wanted to do crude humor or religious were then kind of left to themselves. Um, for crude humor, um, what we saw was a company that actually sent a voltage spike at the right time, and that was how it bypassed. And I'm sure that can't cause any problems. Um, and then what we saw for another company was they used a dongle, uh, which was really similar to the Game Genie where it clipped on, and then it used the good game because you had to use you had to dongle one of its games and a known good game together so that at the right moment, the good game could send its code and then you could play that game. Um, other companies created dev kits, but the most notorious would have been Tengen. Um, they tried to originally reverse engineer the CIC chip, but they weren't able to. Tengen, by the way, was owned by Atari, so uh, that's definitely some history. And when they couldn't have any luck with it, um, they went into the copyright department where the code was copywritten. And they said, hey, um, we have a legal problem. And for the case, we need to see the code. And they revealed the code at that point, And then uh, they were able to get it. So of course, Nintendo sued. But Nintendo lost that suit because at that particular time, the intellectual property, if a computer um, created something, and in that case, the CIC created a number, that number couldn't be patented. And um, I don't know, I, I'm not quite sure if the rules are the same, but 
that's how it went. Uh, the Game Boy, I, I feel like they got a little lazy with the Game Boy. Um, they were trying to get it in at a really low price point and make it really portable. And so over time, they lost the backlight, which would have made it useful, uh, really useful. And so what would happen is, is you would boot and um, on the boot screen, it would say Game Boy. But that Game Boy wasn't stored in the device itself. It was stored on the cartridge in a very particular part of memory. So if it didn't have that, then it, it wouldn't boot up. Um, because this was kind of flimsy copyright control, you saw a whole lot of fakes. Um, and these fakes would show up at flea markets and stuff, and particularly with the Pokemon games, because there were like, uh, back in those days, there were like eight different Pokemon games of different colors. And so you would want to have all of them. Um, and so there were cheats. Now there are whole um, systems of figuring out whether or not the Pokemon GBA game and GB game you have is legitimate or not based off of like the number of screws and things. Um, I, I'm not quite sure why they got lazy. I don't know if they considered they had relatively good luck with the CIC and they didn't need to, but um, it did become a problem. PlayStation 1 um, also had suffered even more problems even more quickly. Um, they just weren't expecting to undergo it at all. Um, I have on here the game Incredible Crisis. Should you ever get a PlayStation 1, I highly recommend it. You play a Japanese salaryman and you have to get home to grandma's birthday before the end of the day. But a series of bizarre, bizarre things like Godzilla becoming unleashed happen and you need to navigate yourself around it. Um, because they use the CD-ROM, CD-ROMs, uh, writers were really popular and it turns out all you really needed to do to get around it was you would put the first disc in wait for it to spin up wait a certain amount of time quickly open the lid swap it for a second one um, and then you could actually hear the spin up and spin down and that was how you were able to uh, use a home burnt cd uh, they also had black bottoms there was some myth that you needed to have a black bottom cd in order for it to work. Um, that, that was only a cosmetic thing. So now we can look at video game protections for the PC. Um, these are a little more clever because people had even less money uh, as the average video game PC maker. Uh, there's no central authority. You, you created it whenever you wanted to. Um, it was an open architecture. I have disks of multiple sizes here. <clears throat> Anyone with an idea and a computer can make a game and they were super easy to copy. So um, I have to say this as a young person, this is what I was taught about copying at school and I still think it's relevant. Second. All right. Got it up now so I can share it. Let me make sure I get the sound. We're just going to listen to a minute of this. 
because it's terrible and I feel like everybody who's on here needs to hear this. You're not gonna be there's one behind you. Oh man. Crash and burn. Too bad, Corey. Guess that makes me the winner. Again. Temporary winner. I've been holding back. I've been giving you a break just so you get the hang of it. But now it's time to teach you a little respect. Right. But it'll have to be next time. It's almost fourth period and I do not want to get caught in here. But Jenny, hold up. Look, I brought a disc and we could copy this, okay? And we can play it on my brother's computer. Okay, no problem. All we gotta do is... Whoa. Are you sure you know what you're doing? Did I hear you right? Did I hear you saying that you're gonna make a copy of a game without paying? Come on, guys. I thought you knew better. Don't copy that floppy. Don't, don't. All right. I, uh, I hope you guys could hear it um, and that it has convinced you not to copy your floppy diskettes. Uh, Mike happened to say this is 100% accurate of what the 80s were like. And I think that's right, at least to my knowledge. If it was done with a rap, then it was considered edutainment and we would listen. Um, if you really get bored, uh, Wendy's also did its training videos as a rap and um, R&B, and they are also terrible. And I also highly, highly recommend them. So um, I talked to the Graybeards at my local uh, DEF CON group, and uh, I wanted to learn a little more about some of the old timer disc copy floppy protection. And um, some games would intentionally set bad sectors on the five and a quarter inch floppies. And um, according to some of the folks I talked to, they would actually put pinholes in. Um, you know, the, the disks were much bigger, data density was much bigger. So these weren't quite as hard to, to manage that um, feat. So standard uh, disk copying would, you know, um, would see that read error and then it would just skip that part of it and then put the next set of bits right next to it. So then when you ran that copy protection, it knew in the disk that um, you weren't doing it right. So users got savvy and they started making more tools that did sector by sector so that you could better kind of grow your floppy uh, so that it would play correctly. Um, additionally, uh, some players even got so savvy that they could hear when the game was about to go to where it needed to go to for the bad sector and you would lift it up so that it wouldn't read and it would think it was bad. That to me seems sounds like sorcery um, but the gentleman who told me about it said that it wasn't really that hard. You could hear it, um, but that's a little before my time. Now, what happened at my time was that um, a lot of the games I played, I would buy at Best Buy and they would be these 50 in one collections of video games. And so rad, you would get 50 old video games, but none of them would have manuals. And it turned out the problem was, was that if these games didn't have manuals, uh, you couldn't do the copyright protection, uh, which in the case of this game, which is life and death. Um, and I played this uh, last week on archive.org where they have a whole lot of them in virtual machines. So you can just spin them up and play them in your browser. Um, if you don't have that code, then you aren't able to do surgery. 
and then somebody's appendix could burst, but it's a virtual appendix, so it's probably okay. I really love this game. Um, so the nurse would call you and you would need to put in a specific number that if you had the secret decoder wheel, you could do. But of course, you 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 didn't if you bought it at the special 15-in-1 games, which was legal, just wasn't packaged well. Um, the best that I have heard of, of anti-copyright protections would be the one that was used on the Super Nintendo for the game Earthbound. Um, what they were finding out was that cartridges had more than eight kilobytes of SRAM. So if it detected uh, that, then it assumed that you had a uh, copied cartridge. And so you would get a warning that piracy was a really bad thing and the game would freeze. However, they knew that eventually the piracy folks would figure out a way around that. So if you got around that, you could play the game, but then more enemies would suddenly be spawning. And then after you beat the final boss, the screen goes black and your save file is removed. Um, that save file removed thing, it's still done a lot with um, games where uh, they'll, they'll have um, a checksum. And if you go messing into the save file and your checksum doesn't match, then the game goes bye-bye. So the big wrap up is how much effort should video game makers put in copy protection? And in my humble opinion, it should be enough to last the duration of how long that the um, game system is going to be in action. That, that's how long it is and what could they do to improve? And um, a lot of people said, that they wouldn't have been so harsh with Nintendo's CIC chip and finding their own way if Nintendo had been more cooperative. I don't know if that's true. That's it. And uh, I am ready for any questions you may have. Uh, I'm glad somebody enjoyed the Earthbound. Thank you, Jacob. Hey, Kelly, thanks. This is really great. Uh, I, you know, the part with the manual thing, I still play a game to this day that's like 35 years old that you have to do that. And, you know, I don't have the manual, but, you know, I keep this text file that I've had on my computer from, you know, whenever I move computers, I move this game to whatever. Um, but that's pretty cool. Did you, do you think that was like one of the most common, that was pretty much the most common way to protect back then? Like, for a lot of games, because I know I played other games that did that was that was pretty popular, right? Yeah, when I when I talk to people about this talk to try to just gather our 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 local knowledge, that seemed to be what everybody brought up was different games in the secret decoder rings. Okay, did you get a chance to watch the Tetris movie yet? Not yet. It is on my list, though. I'm excited. Yeah. It, it's a great story. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And they, I, I don't remember hearing Tengen in that, but maybe they changed names because of whatever copyright or something. But I'd forgotten. They got the first right. Had done, yeah, they'd done that. Maybe, maybe they did early. There's a lot of names being dropped in that. Right. So yeah, yeah, you definitely should check it out. I mean, it's, it, it's an okay movie. I mean, I thought it was good, but it's probably not for a wide audience of people. Right, like my mom probably might not get the um, yeah, same yeah. thrill you or I might get from it. I get that. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
Uh, looks like we got a question here. Let me uh, read this. Uh, I'm curious about your thoughts on ROMs for preservation of gaming. Uh, often they come from piracy community. During the height of the game's profitability, ROMs are seen as criminal, but long after they are seen as historical preservation. Um, that's a good question. It's a little difficult um, to, to answer. Um, I, I do tend to think that abandonware after the time that nobody else can use it, it, it might be, it's an interesting legal time. Um, I think archive.org is doing, uh, I, I is doing some interesting stuff with that where they're putting it up for you to use and to keep alive. Yeah, like a lot of these games, you can't. Oh, I know, like they discontinued, you know, one of the Wii marketplaces or something recently. Uh, and like those games are gone, you know, until Nintendo officially, until Nintendo brings them back, maybe, but you never know. They might not. Yeah. And so homebrewers with the emulators, um, that, that I think is probably the most tragic because. They love this device so much that they want to uh, create right. more things for it. And right. that's where it gets difficult. Yeah, because yeah, I think the DS and the Wii store closed recently. Um, right, right. Yeah, Alex uh, in the question says big companies aren't interested in supporting uh, or creating emulators, basically. Yeah. yeah. I, I'm very surprised that we have what we have had. I mean, that they did do some of it on the Wii store. I mean, I never thought Nintendo would do that. Um, but yeah. Yeah. If yeah. anybody has any questions, go ahead and put them in the uh, Q&A. Okay, I guess we don't have any other questions here, but <laughs> Kelly, thank you so much. This is really awesome. And this is, this is, you know, a talk that I'm going to definitely share with all my <laughs> friends and uh, I'm glad. We'll, we'll have this up uh, in a, a few days up onto our website and up onto YouTube also. But um, yeah, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. And yeah, if, you, if you're in Indiana, come stop by, you know, come visit us at Purdue. We'd love to have Sounds you. Sounds good. Okay, great. Thanks a lot. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.